online. Uh, yeah, crew actually invited me to speak on Jesus a couple weeks ago, so I got to go speak to some of the NIU students about Jesus, which I love to do, and Sarah was, I knew Sarah, but she was emceeing, and I was like, you're good, <laughs> so why don't we introduce you a little bit more to the church family, and she was all in. Um, there's a lot of, I mean, you notice, she kind of joined online, there's a lot of new faces in the last two years, which was something I didn't really expect in light of all the pandemic stuff, um, but we have a new members class that's 11 strong. It's almost done. Doug and Kathy Stice have been leading it. I think they've been doing a great job, and they've informed me that we have 11 first-round draft picks, so they're very excited about the new members. Well, I'll introduce them when they're completely finished, and I, uh, and I actually think there's a few people I need to introduce from before the pandemic. I actually think the very first Sunday we went... Um, online, we were supposed to introduce some people. So there might be more than 11 that we introduced to you. But, and you can see their names in the bulletin if you have that, but one of the, uh, one of the, one of the new members is a guy named Chris Hill. He and his life, wife Lizzie uh, started coming across you, I think, within the last two years as well in the midst of all this craziness. And I've gotten to know them. They're a really great couple. And I, and I like, if, if you're newer to the Crossview, I, I, if I get to talk to you, I, I like to meet you. I like to hear your story. And I will often say, it'd be great if we can get together sometime outside of a Sunday morning, because Sunday mornings are crazy. Actually, I extend that invitation to anybody in our church family. I think I'm a better pastor when I know people and I know their stories. So I love to get time with you. And Chris and I have gotten together a few times. But we got together a couple months ago. It was the last time we got together. I don't know if this is part of the reason why, but... We had agreed to meet at Bee's Walk and Roll. I know some of you love Bee's Walk and Roll. I like Bee. She's pretty cool. But Chris had written down 12 o'clock in his calendar. I wrote down 12.30. So I walk in to Bee's Walk and Roll. You've got to go in the side door right now. I walk in. I see him sitting in the back at a booth. And I get the sense, you know, you kind of read. It's like, I think he's been here more than five minutes. And I walk up to Chris, and I'm like... Hey, man, you been here long? And he's, uh, Chris, I mean, if you meet Chris, he's so kind. I think he was, like, embarrassed that I asked. He's, yeah, 30 minutes. Like, he didn't say it rude or any, like, it, 30, I was, 30 minutes. Oh, my goodness, Chris. Yeah, I had 12 o'clock now. I had 12.30. And I just started, I don't know if you've been there, but I've been, I've been sitting there just waiting. <laughs> and I just started to run through all the things, I, all the things I just made Chris go through the embarrassment of the waiter, like, you ready to order? You need more water? <laughs> you sure they're coming? And you begin to think, did I, did I get this wrong? Am I, am I just not important enough? Did something more, you know, all the things that run through your mind as you're waiting. But Chris actually is going to be a great kind of example for kind of the posture we want to take, as Sarah mentioned, as we enter Advent this year waiting on God, just sitting and waiting, but knowing with confidence the waitress might wonder, Where, where's, your, where's your guest? Where's your friend? But you know they're coming. You don't know when, but you know they're coming. That's what we're going to talk about. Waiting on God. There's no shame in waiting on God, and your waiting will never be in vain. Now, we're starting this new series. We got a new graphic. Alyssa, who's sitting in the back, does all our graphics. She's so artistic and awesome. Let's cla- actually clap for Alyssa because she's in here. She... She's going to hate that I did that, but I don't care, Alyssa. I love your artwork. So, um, so, and Alyssa and I work on some of the stuff on these graphics. I give her what I'm doing, and she just does it. I love it. 
So we're doing the church calendar, and, um, and I want to I explain, I'll try to explain this throughout the series, and the series is going to go on for a year, <laughs> but it'll, it'll take different shapes, but, but I want to explain why we're doing this, and I will remind you of this as we keep going, but one of my primary callings as a pastor, I believe, as the Bible lays it out, is to equip the church, to equip the church to live this Jesus life. One of the things I say often is that you'll never drift into the Jesus way. If you drift, you're not going to end up in the Jesus way. You're going to end up somewhere else. And so what I try to do is provide intentional, formational practices that keep Jesus at the center. It's one of the pieces of discipleship. Are you engaging in formational practices that keep Jesus at the center of your life? That's what this whole series is going to be about. It's a year with Jesus is basically what I'm thinking of as the series. So let me try to explain this. If some, some of you have been through our discipleship pathway formed, some of you have been through it more than once, that's great. But informed, we, we do a week on prayer school. I went to prayer school, and one of the things I learned at prayer school about myself, and as a pastor, I think this is true of many people actually, is that we often aren't discipled in prayer. And so what ends up happening, and, and some of you may need to step back and look at your own prayer life and ask this question. <laughs> But I've learned in my own life, if I'm drifting or just as a pastor, as I get to know other people, we often simply pray out of our own desires. Our prayer is a laundry list of things that we want, right? Or, and I think if the last two years has taught us anything about our our country, I don't know that we're as emotionally aware as we think we are. We also often pray out of our emotions. And I I say this frequently, we talk about our emotions, they're a part of who we are. Emotions make excellent windows into your soul to pay attention to what's going on, but they're horrible leaders. And a lot of Christians either pray out of their desires or their emotions. Think about how dangerous that is for your soul. And I asked this question in the last group of formed, which just ended up a couple weeks ago. I asked them this question, they were pretty affirmative on this. How much change happens if you only pray out of your desires and your emotions? How, much, how, how formed are you to be like someone other than who you already are? Not much, right? That's a big part of prayer school is learning how to pray, learning to pray better prayers, learning to pray with Jesus at the center so that you're formed to be like him because that's the whole goal is that you and I would be transformed to be more like Jesus. So in the same way, that's what we're going to do over the next year is practice the Christian calendar. I don't know that we'll do it again. We'll see. We'll see how this year goes. But I want to equip you, and we're going to walk through the whole year so that you feel the rhythm of the Christian calendar. And what the Christian calendar basically does, Advent is going to lead us into Christmas, and we'll walk through each of these seasons as we get there. But the Christian calendar means that we are going to arrange the 12 months of our years around Jesus Christ. Doesn't that sound like a good idea? Around his life, death, and resurrection. We'll practice the rhythm of the Gospels through this next year. And I, and I actually think this is a good time for all of us to step... I was thinking about this. There's a few different stories that are pervasive in what we've been talking about as modern-day Babylon in our last series. But one of the preeminent stories is consumerism. And I want you to just pause and think about how many of us allow, because if if you're not intentional, you're going to drift. How many of us allow the advertisers to shape the way that we think about the 12 months of our year? How many of us think, oh, this is the time to shop for this? Oh, it's Valentine's Day, time to shop for chocolate and things red. 
right? Oh, Christmas, now's the time that I buy things for other people. I mean, how much of consumerism is shaping the way that we arrange our year? And consumerism is the story that I am what I choose and what I purchase. Are you, are you more than that in Christ? I think so. So what we're going to do is try to be countercultural. Maintain our Christian identity. We're going to arrange these 12 months around the life and teachings of Jesus and see what it does for our soul. As a pastor, I'm just trying, it's not the only tool, just trying to give you another tool for your toolbox. And what we're going to do then is preach a gospel. Well, I, I give myself permission to be a little bit flexible where I want to be, but my intent is to preach, it's a year of Jesus. We're going to preach a gospel text pretty much every Sunday. And if you go through prayer school, you'll know that what I do is I read, a, I read a gospel lesson. I pray it. I don't just read I pray a gospel story every week. And I just go to the Book of Common Prayer. There's probably other ways to do this. I just go to the Book of Common Prayer. I just take the gospel reading for that. If you get in the Book of Common Prayer, we're in, we're in year C this year. There's A, B, and C. So that's what I'll just be picking that text and preaching that text. It's tied to the church calendar. It'll be helpful. That's what I'm going to do um, throughout the next year. And I got to tell you one more thing as we jump in. Uh, for the super aware and keen, the Sherlock Holmes is in here. It's a new Bible. I don't know if you notice this. It's a new Bible. So my old Bible, the binding was falling apart and the pages are starting to come out and I have no problem buying a new Bible. I'm like, sweet, I wore out another one. Let's get a new one. But when I, I mean, I have the privilege, I've been to seminary, I've studied Greek and Hebrew, and I understand a bit about the translations and how they work. But I tend to like, I mean, most of the, there's a few that are messed up, but they're more tied to cults, so we stay away from those. Most of the mainstream translations are really good. Uh, when When I really came alive to Jesus, the group I was with, the leaders read from the ESV, the English Standard Version, so I read that for a long time. Until I joined a new community that read from the NIV, the New International Version. So I read from that for a long time. And then uh, we've been reading with the English Standard Version. I've been doing that for a long time. All great translations. But I was getting a new Bible. I asked new translations. And because we're going to be doing gospel stories, I thought it would be great to jump into the New Living Translation. Now you may not know much about it. It's a newer translation. I will tell you why I'm predisposed to it. Because if you read through the front, it will eventually tell you the teams of people, it's teams, it's multiple people for each book that work together to translate this. And I know a bunch of them. (laughs) A bunch of my seminary professors are on the translating team. So I know these people, I respect them, I know how smart they are. So again, that's why I'm somewhat predisposed to the New Living Translation. So we're going to be in a new series, in the Gospels, for a year, and I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. Now our text for this morning as we begin, it's really the new year, this is, this is why we're starting today, it's the new year in the Christian calendar, first Sunday in Advent. And our text this morning comes to us, and you'll see why when we get there, you'll say, oh, I didn't think that would be the first Sunday of the year text, but it is. Uh, it's in Luke chapter 21, it's called the Olivet Discourse, you can find it in Matthew chapter 24 or Mark chapter 13, but we're going to be in Luke chapter 21. And the disciples are talking with Jesus. They're talking about the temple. I'm going to give you a little context before we get to verse 25. You can, if you want to open your Bibles and look, you, I'm going to kind of summarize what begins in verse 5. But the disciples are talking about the temple, and 
And they have this sense that they're, they're, they're in Jerusalem with Jesus, Passover. They have this sense that something big is about to happen. So they mention the temple, and Jesus says, it's coming down. Every stone is coming down. It's verse 5. But Jesus is then going to begin to prophesy. If you read, if you scan from verse 5 up to verse 24, he's going to prophesy. He's going to, I mean, Jesus is a prophet, priest, and king. And he's going to kind of fill the role of prophet. And he's going, to, he's going to prophesy about some things that are going to happen. If you read through Luke's gospel, it is going to play out basically exactly as it happens in the year 70. When the Romans siege Jerusalem, surround the city, and destroy the temple. In fact, Jesus is going to say... Get out when the armies come, and the Christians are going to do what Jesus said. They're going to, I think they flee to Pella and Jordan. They get out, and they live. The Jews stay. Everybody who stays gets killed. So Jesus, and we talked about this a few weeks back when we looked at Jeremiah. Much like Jeremiah, he is prophesying about the destruction of this temple. It's very clear. And yet, and yet. If you read the prophets, you will understand that God exists beyond time. And so many of his prophecies have layers. It's like there's a fulfillment for the people hearing, but, but then there's this, there's this bigger fulfillment. Of course, it always comes around Jesus. As Christians, everything points to Jesus, and it's pretty amazing how that works. So there's always layers to these prophecies, and there's always layers in a sense, to Jesus. The person of Jesus is massive in the biblical story. We like to talk about how Jesus is the new Adam. He's the new Israel. He's the new humanity. Jesus is the high priest that we've all been, the true high priest. But he's also the true king. Uh, Jesus is the altar where the sacrifice is made, and he's also the sacrifice that is being made. Jesus is the Sabbath rest we've been longing for. And he's also the end of exile that we've been talking about. Jesus is so many things in the biblical story. And so I always get a little worried when we try to minimize Jesus or or make something too simplistic or formulaic in the biblical text. And one of my professors, my gospel professor, my advisor, really my closest friend professor when I was at Trinity, he's since passed away. You've heard me talk about Dr. Grant Osborne. When we were going through the Gospels, he would always kind of cringe whenever anybody would raise an either-or kind of paradigm with Jesus. He'd always say, why? Why are you trying to do this or that? Why, why couldn't it be both? He loved the both and. That was just, it really shaped me. And it's because of the magnitude of Jesus, God in human flesh, who he is. And so I want you to think, maybe I'll raise a question, you don't need to answer this out loud, but think about this. Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple. And the temple is going to be destroyed, right? If you know the story of Israel, the Shekinah glory of God enters into the temple when Solomon builds it and prays, and it's so, it's tangible, the priest can't even go in. But as we talked about a few weeks ago, Ezekiel is in exile in Babylon, and he has a vision, and he sees the Shekinah glory of God leave that first temple. The temple is then destroyed. A second temple is built, but we are never told in the Bible that God's Shekinah glory dwells there. 
In fact, the first time we see the Shekinah glory of God dwelling amongst humanity again is John 1 verse 14. The Word became flesh and tabernacled, templed amongst us. So think about this. Jesus is saying, yeah, the temple's going to be destroyed, and it is. But is he talking about that temple or the true temple, which in a few days is going to be crucified? And he's going to talk about how the, the world is going to see suffering like it's never seen before. Is there any suffering in greater magnitude than the suffering of a perfectly innocent Jesus Christ on the cross, dying not for his sins but for ours? Do you understand there's layers there's an abomination of, of desolation in the destruction of the temple, but there's, an, a, there's a sacrilegious abomination of desolation in the destruction, the crucifixion of Jesus' body. There's layers. And we're going to pick up in verse 25, and this is really where we're going to connect this to Advent. Jesus is going to use apocalyptic language. The Bible uses apocalyptic, it's extreme, it's symbolic, it's cosmic, it's cataclysmic. Jesus is going to use apocalyptic language, and that, that adds to our ability to kind of see the layers of this prophecy. Because it was apocalyptic when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 by the Romans. But it's also then going to point to the end of times and the second coming of Christ which is what we are beginning to posture ourselves towards as we celebrate Advent, the coming of Jesus Christ. We're preparing, we're waiting. So with all that said, let's read this text. Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 25. You'll see the apocalyptic language right away. And there will be strange signs in the sun, moon, and stars, right? This cosmic imagery. And here on earth, the nations will be in turmoil, perplexed by the roaring seas and strange tides. People will be terrified at what they see coming upon the earth, for the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then here's the sign. The disciples are asking for a sign. That's what generates this whole conversation. What will be the sign? That these things are happening. Well, Jesus says, here's the sign. Everyone will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and great glory. And when all these things begin to happen, stand and look up. Why? Because your salvation is near. Then he gives them this illustration. Notice the fig tree or any other tree. When the leaves come out, you know without being told that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things taking place, you can know, you can know what? That the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass away from the scene until all these things have taken place. Again, if you only think about the end times, that gets confusing. But, but, but if he's talking about his own body, or even the destruction of the temple, well, now we see the layers of what Jesus is doing. And then, again, because I think this still stands and gives us preparation, heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. We're, we're still, we're looking for the Son of Man coming on the clouds, right? And then this is the discipleship instruction from Jesus, as Luke records it. Watch out. Don't let your hearts be dulled by carousing and drunkenness, which stands on its own. Let that preach on its own. <laughs> But for the sake of this morning, I, I think I'm also content with saying, don't let your hearts be dulled by consumerism. 
by the need for instant gratification, by the need for entertainment, by the need to have the latest new whatever. Don't let your soul be damaged. Don't let your hearts be dulled. And just let this stand on its own because Jesus said this then, but he says it to you and I now. Don't let your hearts be dulled by the worries of this life. I know you got worries. But Jesus, don't let your hearts be dulled. No, no, no. Watch out. Stay on the alert. He's coming again, right? Don't let this day catch you unaware like a trap, for that day will come upon everyone living on the earth. Keep alert at all times and pray that you might be strong enough to escape these coming horrors and stand before the Son of Man. Pray that you can endure, that you can persevere. Let's talk a little bit about this. I did some reading. One author was talking about the apocalyptic language and This is what he said. I like this. Jesus is trying to teach the disciples how they must live in the light of his coming. And thus, he's also teaching us how we must live in the light of his second coming. The dramatic character of apocalyptic language should help the disciples understand the challenge he presents to them. We, along with the disciples, make a disastrous mistake. If we all allow our imaginations to be possessed by the images of apocalypse rather than by the one on whom those images are meant to focus our attention. That is Jesus. In fact, Matthew, well, I'll try to do this in the series because you get a sense for the personalities and the intentions of these gospel writers writing these discipleship books Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are doing different things as they write the story, and it's beautiful to see what they're doing. Luke leaves this out. He's got reasons for doing it, but Matthew and Mark want you to know that no one knows the time of the ends except the Father himself. So let's not get too caught up in all of that. We keep our eyes on Jesus, even if we're living in difficult times. Now, Jesus, as he mentions the Son of Man coming on the clouds, if you're schooled in the biblical story, you may know that he's referencing a prophetic dream that Daniel has in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. You can read that on your own later. Daniel sees a parade of beasts that are wreaking havoc on the earth. And what are these beasts? Well, we've been talking about it in our last series. They're, they're empires, and they're beastly. And it's beast after beast after beast until there's one who comes like a son of man. Part of what Daniel's saying is, I finally someone who lives humanely. Someone human. And of course, this imagery goes into the book of Revelation, which is the big apocalypse in the Bible. And we've talked about that, right? There's a big difference between beast power and lamb power. (laughs) The son of man is going to lead humanely through lamb power, He's not a beast. And the good news is that there is no end to his kingdom. That's what Daniel sees. He will be given dominion over all peoples, over all nations, all languages, and they will serve him with joy. The elect will be gathered from all the the nations, and they will constitute a new people. That's Again, what have we said all the way through that last series? A people that the world has never seen before. A new kind of people. And Jesus is the sign. Jesus is the sign of the end of the age. We'll know it when we see him. (laughs) Now, Jesus is then going to talk about this fig tree. 
Jesus' use, because I think what he's trying to do, Jesus' use of Daniel is not an attempt to invite his disciples to think ahead, but to discern the present. You see the focus of what he's doing. So he directs their attention to the lesson of the fig tree. The suggestion is summer is near. He wants his disciples to be able to see all these things and recognize what God is doing now. That the Messiah is near, that he's coming. (laughs) That he's coming. In fact, um, yeah, he's coming. I'll just say that. And then he's going to end. And you kind of get this tension. It's like, is this good news or bad news? Like the Son of Man's coming, but it's also kind of dark and and there's judgment. Is this good news or bad news? Should I be terrified or excited? I think that's an honest question to ask. So let me, we'll talk more about that question as we journey through the Gospels in the next year. But let me say something quickly about that. The judgment that falls on the pagan nations when the Son of Man comes is the same judgment that's going to vindicate the Son of Man. I've been referencing Psalm 2 a lot lately because we've been talking about Babylon and empire. Just go back and read Psalm 2. But it raises the question, when God comes, is it a good day or a bad day? And I think this morning I'll simply say it depends on who you are. Because God is going to turn things upside down. And it seems to be the categories that Jesus is the most comfortable using in his teaching is that on the day God acts, it's not going to be good for the proud, but it's going to be a day of celebration for the humble. In other words, when God acts, it's going to be experienced in different ways by different people. For the arrogant and the proud, it's a day of the tables being flipped and their fears coming to pass. They hate it and it burns them up in many ways. But for the humble, it's a day of hope, healing, and restoration. It's a day to leap for joy. That's why one of the songs we may sing over the next few weeks is, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And what's one of the lines? The hopes and fears of all the years. (laughs) The hopes for the humble and the fears of the proud. And what Jesus is saying is watch carefully, live carefully. If you get impatient and don't wait on God, then the judgment will catch you in an embarrassing state. So be ready, live well in the interim, because you're going to have to wait. In fact, if we were in Matthew's gospel, Matthew includes some parables that Mark and Luke don't, but Matthew is going to give a few parables to try to teach the disciples how to wait well. That's what he's doing. So we're in Advent. That's the season we're starting. Advent is about learning how to hope and practice patience during difficult days. Advent is about enduring difficult days by anticipating a new day when God will act. I know you know this because we've lived through the same two years together. Being a Christian doesn't somehow transport you to a place where there are no difficult days. But being a Christian does give you a way of holding on to hope so that when it's hard and difficult, you know that God is going to do something about it, right? That's what Advent is all about. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus is using the disciples' question to train them to know how to wait in difficult days, how to endure. 
Their task is not to anticipate the end of time, but rather their task is to learn to endure while they wait, even if it's hard. We could say that one of the dangers we all face as we prepare for the future is the tendency to be indifferent to the presence of God in our present plans. And Advent is the time when God breaks in on us with new surprises because he's so creative. He's the great artist and he's always making beauty. And he touches us with a renewing and restoring power. One of the worst things that can happen, and I know we've all dealt with this, but one of the worst things that can happen to us in a difficult day is that we begin to believe the lie that the way it is is the way it'll be forever. I know you've had to wrestle with that. The way it is, it's just the way it's going to be forever. (laughs) Well, that's when the despair sets in. The burdens get heavy. The pressure gets too much. (laughs) And that's part of the beauty of Advent. In Advent, we know that the world will be restored. That God tells us evil will not have the final word. Now, the ultimate word in history is the triumph of God. What have we talked about? One of the things that fuels consumerism is fear. Fear, fear, fear. Fear you don't have what you need. Fear you don't have enough. Fear you're going to miss out. Fear, fear, fear. And what does fear do to your soul? We've talked about this. Fear reverses reality by making evil seem all-conquering and God seem powerless. Well, let me remind you of something I know you already know. Your God is not powerless. He is so powerful. And he's in charge of history. Advent is the time in the church's year when we remember that the story of Jesus Christ, the one that we read in the Gospels, is not yet finished. Jesus is a figure of the past, but he's so much more than that. He's not like other great figures of the past who are dead and gone, receding ever further into the past as the course of history rolls on. Jesus Christ is alive, which means Jesus is our contemporary, but Jesus is also our future because he's coming in the future. Our history is bound up with the person of Jesus, and so we wait for Jesus. Advent is about waiting for Jesus. Now, this is not any kind, just any kind of waiting. Rather, it is the waiting made possible by a hope made real. Christians inherently, part of our identity is people of hope, right? Faith, hope, and love. We know the greatest is love, but hope is still there. We are people of hope, and Jesus is that hope, and he instills the same hope in those who would follow him. And I want to be clear, it is not the hope of idealism, that tires out when the ideals seem unreachable. No, it is the hope schooled by the Father's patience to redeem the world through His Son in love. One author said this, Without patience, those filled with hope threaten to destroy that for which they hope. In other words, if you're not patient, you'll act too quickly and destroy that for which you hope for. Because you need a savior, I do too. Jesus can do things we can't do. And without hope, the patient threaten to leave the world as they find it. In other words, your patience 
but you've settled for the lie that the world is the way it is and it'll never be different and you lose hope. You know, we talk about informed, how love is a calibration of grace and truth. Grace without truth isn't grace and truth without grace isn't truth. You need grace and truth for love and I love this because there's a sense of you need to learn how to calibrate patience and hope. It's part of the Christian journey. Disciples of Jesus must learn how to take the time patiently to hope in a world that thinks it has no time for either patience or hope. Biblical hope is based on a person who has revealed himself as love. And that's very different than optimism. Biblical hope is an optimism based on the odds. It's a choice to wait for God to bring about a future that's as surprising as a crucified man rising from the dead. We're waiting on God to redeem all people. We're waiting on God to redeem all of creation. We're waiting on God to heal all our harms and to rescue us from evil and death. And we wait. Advent is for waiting. And so we begin our church calendar not by celebrating, but by waiting. Waiting for God to act. And I know, I know, I know, I know, I know we don't like to wait. Because waiting is what? Waiting is not having, right? Waiting assumes a kind of poverty. I don't have something I want. I have to wait for it. We wait because we lack something. And because we're primarily formed in consumerism, in our instant gratification and one-click consumerism, we are conditioned to be ashamed of our poverty. Ashamed of our lack, ashamed of our, oh, I I haven't seen that show yet. There must be something wrong with me, right? We don't like to wait. In our waiting, it can feel like the embarrassment of sitting at a table for two at whatever restaurant you want to imagine and telling your waiter over and over again that your friend will show up at any minute. (laughs) You may inwardly begin to feel stood up. You may feel like you're waiting in vain. But hear this. This is what the psalmist says in Psalm 25. You can read it on your own. (laughs) Those who wait on God are never put to shame. (laughs) If you're waiting on God, you will not be put to shame. But we've got a few minutes left. Let me say this. You do have to remember that you're waiting for God. Why do I say that like that? Because... This was good news to me. I hope it's good news to you. You and I are not waiting for an event. We're not waiting for a happening. We're not waiting for an occurrence. We're not waiting for something. We're not waiting for a certain outcome that we think we need. Too often, again, this goes back to formation. We think we've got it all figured out, and we want our life to be like this. We want this to happen, this occurrence, this to come to us. Again, our desires are the center of our formation more than we know. And if you're waiting for that thing or that occurrence or that happenstance, that's not waiting for God. That's waiting for a thing, not a person. What you and I are doing is we're waiting for God. We're waiting for God to come. We're waiting for God to show up. We're waiting for God to act. Well, then you ask, well, when God shows up, what will he do? I don't know. Here's what I'll tell you. He'll be coming on the clouds. (laughs) And you'll know it's Jesus. It's apocalyptic, but that's as far as I'm willing to tell you right now. But what I promise you is he'll come. 
And he'll do something. Well, when's he going to come? I don't know. Well, what's he going to do? I don't know. But here's the thing. I know Jesus will come. And here's the good news for you. He's way more creative than me. And Jesus knows. He knows so much deeper. Even than you yourself know what you really need. Do you understand why that's such good news? Because you think you know what you need, but you don't even really know what you need. You know what you need? You need a savior. That's what you need. You need a rescuer to rescue you from yourself, from your own sin. You don't actually need the thing you think you need. You need Jesus. And Jesus will come and he will give you exactly what you need. But you didn't even know to ask for it. That's why when we pray our supplications to God, we thank him before we ask. (laughs) Because we already know he's going to give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knew. So we wait on God. Well, when's he going to come? I don't know, but he's coming on the clouds. What's he going to do? I don't know, but it'll be better. He will give beyond what you could imagine. I can't predict what God is going to do in all of our circuits. I know at the end of times, he's going to restore and redeem everything. But I don't know when he's coming. We still, we still may be the early church, folks. But he's going to come. But in the meantime, he's breaking and the kingdom is near. The, the leaves, the summer's coming. And he's coming and I know, I know. You're waiting. You and I are all waiting and maybe you feel ashamed. Maybe you, you feel like something is missing or, or terribly late in arriving in your life. And so you're waiting, you're waiting for God. You feel, man, all, everybody's watching me. The waiter, the waitress just keeps filling up my water glass. But you don't need to wait in shame. You can wait in confidence because Jesus is coming. That's going to be the best meal. It's a feast, the greatest meal, the banquet of God. It's worth waiting for. And so we wait, and God will come. And I don't know when exactly, and I don't know how exactly, but it's going to be better than you know. It's going to be apocalyptic. And he will answer your prayer, because God is on the move. And this is one of the things that we as Christians, we just have to embrace this. The Bible is always referencing. He he could come at any moment. And so we're, we're waiting, but, but the wait is almost over, folks. <laughs> I mean, that's what we did. We just live in the hope. We're patient, but we're waiting. So during Advent, we focus on waiting. It may look like we've been stood up by God, but we know he's coming. So we stay at the table and we keep waiting. Nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to fear, because God will come. And when he comes, it'll be apocalyptic. He'll be riding on the clouds. And he'll bring grace, and he'll bring healing, and he'll bring forgiveness, and he'll restore your wounded soul and lift you up with him. Be humble, don't be proud, and let God come and raise you up, because we know that all who wait on God will never be put to shame. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I want to do, I have a very simple prayer this morning. So I just want to take a couple seconds and I just want to give us all a chance because I have a feeling we're all waiting 
I mean, in the, in the contours of our current life, we're all waiting on different things. So, Spirit of God, I just want to pause for a moment. Maybe you move right now, but again, we're, we want to be patient people and not expect that it has to happen right now because we're paying attention to you. <laughs> but we want to begin the conversation with you. Maybe there's things that we're waiting for that you're like... Stop waiting for that. (laughs) You want to free us of some unnecessary anxiety and burdens. Or maybe there's some things that we're waiting for that are worth waiting for. And we're losing hope. We're just sitting at the table, just the waiter, just keep, we're just losing hope. Are you going to come? Spirit, maybe you just want to whisper to our souls right now that you're coming. That we need to learn how to wait well. That we need to learn how to endure in difficult days. So just in these moments of silence, Spirit of God, maybe you have things to say to us about what we're waiting for. And that we can wait a little longer for the things that you want to give us. And then, Jesus, because I'm sure we have a lot of different requests, I'm just going to pray really five words. That's it. But I actually think they're really good prayer, (laughs) really good things to pray that kind of keep us from being too tied to circumstances. So, Jesus, collectively, we pray these five words. Come, Lord Jesus, have mercy. Come, Lord Jesus, and have mercy. In your name we pray, amen.